Welcome to the VVV Podcast. Today we are joined by Niels, founder of Alki Labs. Alki Labs creates matterless domains, virtual real estate for shared augmented reality, allowing you to manifest your knowledge and imagination in the minds of others. Listen in to hear an introduction of Alki Labs for newcomers as well as an update on their progress and plans for investors. Niels, it has been a long time. Thank you so much for coming onto our spaces once again. And I know the audience is super curious about the latest updates of Orchilabs and all the accomplish accomplishments and progress you have made so far. So tell us. Thank you. What can you tell us? Well, always a pleasure being here, first of all. Uh, thank you guys for, for joining again. Uh, since I think there are some new faces here, I'll start from the beginning and just ex explain a little bit what it is that Aoki Labs is up to uh, and, and why you should care. Uh, so Aoki Labs is building a decentralized protocol for collaborative spatial computing. That's a lot of, of big words all at once. But really what it means is uh, we're building a new positioning service to rival services like the GPS and the visual positioning systems of Google and Microsoft, etc. The long-term goal of the PostMesh, this protocol, is to become the default positioning protocol for digital devices. And what's different between the PostMesh and something like the GPS is that it provides much more fine-grained positioning in uh, coordinate systems that aren't trying to be a coordinate system for the whole world, but a coordinate system for the space that you are in. And uh, this has allowed us to uh, do shared augmented reality experiences with uh, sub-centimeter precision and things like this. Now, you might already think like, wait, 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 shared augmented reality. Haven't people been able to do that for a long time? And the answer to that is both yes and no. The, the fundamental problem that digital devices have is that they don't know uh, where they are in the world very well. Like if you were to open your Google Maps right now and you zoomed in, you would find that your phone has an, a, a rough opinion about where it is. But here where I'm sitting in Hong Kong, it certainly doesn't know that I'm sitting on the 28th floor. It doesn't know I'm sitting in this particular room and it doesn't know that my phone is uh, in my left hand and not in my right hand. And that level of precision is not enough to have a shared augmented reality experience. Because with a shared augmented reality experience, when you're placing things in the, in the real world, even if you were to try to describe the position of the digital asset with a GPS coordinate, since the phone has such a fuzzy opinion of its own coordinate, it wouldn't end up looking the same way for both participants anyhow. So in the most famous AR game of all time, Pokemon Go, uh, if, if you got a notification that there's a, a Pikachu at a certain street corner, you actually wouldn't see if two people went there at the same time, that same Pikachu being in this same place actually it was just you could both go to that rough area and have your own single player experience so 
the prerequisite for shared augmented reality is having very fine-grained consensus on positioning. And GPS is fundamentally unable to do that, especially in complex urban environments. Um, GPS is, surprisingly, a line-of-sight technology, meaning that your device needs to have a clear, uninterrupted path to ideally four uh, GPS satellites. And in a city like Hong Kong, that just very, very rarely happens. And anywhere indoors, it doesn't happen at all. But I also said that the answer was, was yes, people could do shared augmented reality before. And the way that that worked was using an alternative positioning service. So not the GPS, but a positioning service like a visual positioning service. So Niantic, the company that developed Pokemon Go, eventually developed something they called the Lightship VPS, VPS standing for Visual Positioning Service. But they're not alone in this. Apple has a visual positioning service. They, they call it Spatial Anchors. Google has a visual positioning service. Microsoft has a visual positioning service. Every major player has a visual positioning service. And what visual positioning services allow you to do is to compare your camera feed to a database of what the world looks like so that you can figure out where you are. And that can both be persistent or ad hoc. So when Pokemon Go first allowed for shared augmented reality, the way it would work, uh, and it, it still works this way in Pokemon Go actually, is um, I would bring up a QR code on my phone and you would scan it. And then we would be in a lobby together. And this lobby would allow up to four people and while, when we are already in the lobby, let's say uh, I have some of my colleagues here. So let's say that uh, Neil, Tracy, Damir, and I go into a lobby. We will all see the same instruction to stand next to each other, shoulder to shoulder. And then we do that and we press next. And then it would tell all of us to point our cameras uh, together at an object, like a, a table. So... We all do that and we press next. And then it would tell us to start slowly circling the object. And while we do that, um, our cameras are trying to do uh, something like a 3D reconstruction of what we're looking at. And it's sending that to Niantic's cloud where Niantic can compare uh, basically the camera feeds of these devices to help us figure out where we are in relation to each other rather than relation to the world, or technically in relation to the object that we're all looking at. And this process takes about a minute. So before it took a, a minute to get into a shared AR session. But two years ago, after having been working on AR tech for two years already, we were, uh, believe it or not, we were trying to make an AR overlay for the uh, game uh, Warhammer, like the tabletop game Warhammer, we invented an instant calibration technique um, that made it possible to just do the first step of just scanning the QR code, and then we're in the same coordinate system. Uh, obviously, we, we filed a patent for that, and a, a lot of people got very excited that we had brought down the, the barrier to entry to a multiplayer session to under a second instead of a full minute. So two years ago, we came out with a bang showing the world that you could have multiplayer AR for the first time or a practical multiplayer AR for the first time. And what got us very excited about this 
was how people reacted to AR when it was shared. We had a hypothesis that the reason that AR hadn't gone mainstream yet was not because we were waiting for AR glasses or waiting for the Vision Pro, because uh, you know, the Vision Pro wasn't out yet. We had a hypothesis that the reason AR hasn't taken off is because there hasn't been a killer app yet. And our hypothesis for the killer app of AR was actually communication. The idea was that when you can see the same digital content together at the same time in the same place, it becomes a tool for you to manifest your knowledge or imagination in the minds of other people. It becomes a very, very powerful communication tool. So if you're making a game, you can manifest your imagination in the minds of the people using it. But uh, we started building out other kinds of applications, like applications for, for retail staff and for shoppers uh, to be able to perceive the world in new ways. And we've gotten uh, tremendous uh, interest and traction in that already. Uh, people are building on our SDK. We are building our own applications that are now piloting with international retailers. And all of this is running on decentralized infrastructure uh, that we can uh, dive in more deeply uh, as, as the evening progresses. But that, in a nutshell, uh, is what Alki Labs does. Alki Labs is building the PostMesh, this protocol for collaborative spatial computing. Spatial computing meaning uh, digital devices' ability to understand their relationship to physical space. And the reason we're building this and the reason we're decentralizing it is because we think that it's a great ethical and moral hazard for companies like Niantic or Microsoft or Google or even Apple uh, to be looking through our eyes in the era of AR glasses. We need to get the positioning stack to work in a way that isn't fundamentally built on espionage. So to do that, we are building the post-mesh. Thank you, Niels. The good thing is for those AMAs, you really don't need me. You can, <laughs> you can no, present please, Orky please. perfectly uh, without anyone asking questions. I'm still going to ask some questions because I know um, yeah, the, the pain points some of the audience has about crypto project as a whole at the moment in the midst of the bear market. And for every, everyone listening, we, we will go into the TGE dates and plans of Orki. And before we do so, please leave a retweet, leave a like, and leave a comment and give us a little bit of patience because I would prefer to talk about the more substantial achievements of Orki first before we go into the nitty gritty of the token. What I really like about Orki is that it can have a tremendous impact on the world in many different areas. Because it's not just augmented reality or shared AR, it's about increasing the efficiency of different industries. So every single time I've been in the, in the Dubai Mall, wished that Orki was already implemented worldwide and I could just find the stores with the help of my phone or even better by looking through uh, smart classes. And of course, you have other areas too where you could allow shared AR in games and you can greatly improve the multiplayer experience of, um, 
of games which will probably come out in the future. And you could use, use the same for social media and for a variety of different areas. Where do you see the early adoption to have the fastest progress? So I think the post-mesh will be adopted first for augmented reality use cases, but it's not limited to augmented reality. The ambition of the post-mesh is to be the new default positioning service for digital devices. And that means IoT, it means robotics, and it even means uh, AI. Look, I got my hashtag AI in there in, in case, you know, there are any hungry investors uh, sitting here. Um, let me explain why the post-mesh is relevant for robotics, for IoT, for AI. Uh, it, it comes back to the original problem statement that digital devices don't understand their position in the world very much. So if we, I'm going to say a something a little bit controversial here. Tesla is not a self-driving car company. A lot of people will agree with this and say that, no, yeah, of course not. Tesla is an AI company. That's really what they're doing. But I would push back even on that and say, no, no, the best way to understand Tesla right now is as a spatial computing company. Because the most valuable asset that Tesla has right now, that is the hardest for people to compete with, are the, uh, is the fleet of cars with cameras uh, pointed at the world, building a reconstruction of what the world looks like, that is helping uh, the AI in their cars understand how to navigate the world. And they're, of course, looking to uh, repeat this with the Optimus robots. Today, ChatGPT lives on the internet. The internet is the domain that it moves through. But if you want something like ChatGPT to walk around the world uh, in, in a robot body, and you want to be able to tell your robot to run down to the grocery store and pick up a couple of items for you, and uh, check in on this and that, then that robot needs to be able to really navigate the world. That AI needs to be able to navigate the world. And that's a spatial computing problem. And spatial computing, then, is the foundation for uh, the ability to have things like self-driving drones. It's the, uh, the foundation for things like AI that move around in the world. And it's the foundation for augmented reality. And for those of you that watched um, the Vision Pro announcement, if you paid attention, you would notice that Tim Cook said that just as uh, the Macintosh introduced the world to personal computers and the iPhone introduced the world to mobile computers, Vision Pro is introducing the world to spatial computers. I think that's cheeky of him to say because I would argue that the iPhone has been a spatial computer for some time already. Uh, the spatial computer, uh, the best definition of a spatial computer, he actually offered up later in the same talk, saying a, a spatial computer is a computer you look through and not at. And that is true of the iPhone or any modern Android device when you are engaging in things like AR. And what's, what's interesting with this statement is that Apple clearly believes that the move from mobile to computing to spatial computing is going to be as impactful as the move from personal computers to mobile computers. And for those of you that are 
old enough to remember this transition, this changed every industry. And Apple is fully expecting spatial computing to change every industry as well. And so does Microsoft, so does Meta, so does Google. All the major tech companies uh, have been spending a lot on spatial computing. Over the last two years, a lot of them did it under the rubric of Metaverse. But if you looked at how uh, companies like, uh, like, like Epic and, uh, well, all of these big companies really, like what they were doing when they were working on hashtag Metaverse, especially uh, Meta, it was spatial computing stuff. Uh, of course, in in our crypto corner of the the internet, metaverse had a lot to do with digital assets and the like. But for for normies in Web two talking about metaverse, metaverse was about having immersive experiences, either in VR or AR. And VR and AR are both enabled by spatial computing. So one of the largest arms races in the world right now. It's the spatial computing arms race receiving uh, similar amounts of capital as even the AI race because the largest companies in the world see a future where spatial computing replaces the mobile computer. Uh, and that's what we believe as well. Unironically, we believe that augmented reality uh, very, very likely, almost certainly represents the next big leap for human communication. And what I mean by that is the transition from mobile to spatial in the context of grand history with a capital, capital H is going to be as impactful as the transition from oral tradition to writing or from writing to the printing press or from the printing press to the telephone or from the telephone to the internet. Uh, what's so powerful with augmented reality, especially shared augmented reality, is that it allows you, again, to manifest your knowledge and imagination in the minds of others with greater clarity, with greater bandwidth than any previous medium. If you, if you sit back and think about it for a little bit, it's almost as if shared augmented reality is the second to last stop on the human communication train. When we can manifest our imaginations directly in the visual fields of others, the only thing better than that would be to manifest your ideas directly directly into the minds of others. So shared augmented reality is the second to final stop uh, on this train ride, the, the final stop being the direct neural interface. So uh, our hypothesis, what the PostMesh project is about, is recognizing that this shift to spatial computing is coming. It's inevitable. It's going to transform every industry. But we need to make sure that it's not built in a centralized way that would allow one or several of these tech giants to literally see through our eyes when we're wearing AR glasses in the future. Uh, and again, that's why it's so important for ethical reasons that the post-mesh is decentralized. Niels, do you think your approach would be more popular amongst certain institutions if it would be centralized? Absolutely. Um, we, even with our own backers at times, you know, there is pressure to collect data. You, you know, like the, the Web2 world taught us that data is the new oil. And if you can collect more data than other people, then you win. I, I even just said to you guys that 
Tesla should be understood as a spatial computing company because their most valuable asset is the fleet of cars out there doing spatial computing. Um, so there are certainly uh, pressures on us to make a business model around collecting data. And often when interacting with developers or even with potential customers that want to build on the PostMesh, we often get questions about what data we collect. And our answer to that is always nothing. We don't collect anything about what the end user is doing. We are not trying to look through the camera uh, of the end user. We're not interested in tracking the movements of, of the end user. We understand that someone could use our protocol to build an application uh, that when you use that application, that application would track your movement. Um, and there's nothing really uh, that can be done to stop that at our, at our level of the tech stack. Uh, but at least you should be able to trust that the protocol itself is not spying on you. You don't need to trust the PostMesh. You only need to trust the applications that you're using, which I think is a, a huge improvement on not only do I have to trust the application I'm, I'm using, but I also need to trust the infrastructure that it's built on. I also need to trust Google. I also need to trust AWS, et cetera. Uh, you shouldn't have to trust the PostMesh not to spy on you. So uh, we're just making it a part of our business model to not collect this data. Thank you. What I like the most about Orki is that it's very easy to understand from everyone's personal experience that GPS is not accurate enough for the next stage of evolution of mankind to really dive into the Internet of Things and to work with robots and AI in the real world. What risk do you see that the post-mesh might be replicated in a different way by Apple or Tesla with the networks which they have from their phones and the AirTags or from the Tesla cars? The risk is, of course, very big. Of course, it's, it's quite possible for one of the, the biggest companies in the world with some of the talent engineer, most talented engineers in the world uh, to build something, decentralized, uh, build something centralized and win. Um, trying to build this in a decentralized way is not an automatic victory. There are reasons why we think a decentralized approach will beat a centralized approach technically, but the best technical approach doesn't always win. The best technical approach doesn't always win. And a, a big hope with decentralizing this protocol is to make sure that we get community participation because what the world does is what the world gets. So if we can get the world to really rally around the importance of making sure that the, the future GPS replacement is not owned by one of these tech companies, if that's something that we want as a civilization, then I believe that's something that we can get as a civilization. But of course, I'm always nervously looking at what is Apple doing? What is Google doing? What is Microsoft doing? And these are very, very formidable companies. So a big part of what we're doing is also just memetic engineering, not just building our stack, but actively working with influencers uh, to change how the AR industry thinks about these things. So we are actively uh, in communication with our competitors, trying to sell them on the benefits of decentralizing what they're doing. Um, because even if, 
even if the only victory outcome was that we, you know, in in the future, Tesla wins this race, but they won it in a way where they have built this decentralized and they are not spying on users. That's also a moral victory uh, for the post-mesh. Now, of course, we are building the post-mesh with the expectation or with the mission for it actually to win and become the universal spatial computing protocol for all digital devices. But the risk that we fail this is, of course, massive. We're competing with the most powerful companies that have ever existed. The competition is Apple. The competition is Google. The competition is Microsoft. And that's, of course, a very stressful situation. But uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft have never really competed with a decentralized community before. And it's going to be very interesting, again, in grand history with a capital H, to see how a decentralized movement of the people, like what we've seen with Bitcoin and Ethereum, can compete uh, with these entrenched tech giants. I appreciate that you're honest about uh, involved risk. And of course, it's going to be difficult because if you succeed, then you will have created one of the biggest companies on the planet. We certainly think so. Uh, the post-mesh, if it really manages to become the foundational positioning stack, uh, would touch almost every industry in, in the world. Um, so we're building something that should be comparable in size to iOS and Android combined if you actually managed to build the universal protocol. And that is a, a big challenge and it's a big responsibility. Um, and we try to work with the community and with thought leaders that we admire, uh, like science fiction authors that we, we read growing up, that we, where we admire their vision of the future, um, to work closely with these people to understand uh, how can this be built in a way that ends up being in the service of civilization rather in the service of a company. And one of the most radical things that I had to embrace as part of this journey, because uh, we had been building uh, Aoki for a long time before there was even a mention of a token being in there. And we had been decentralizing this uh, before there even was a mention of a token being involved here. Uh, a, a big challenge for me was to leave my... Uh, my web two and my capitalism at the door and realize that it's important for the protocol to actually belong to the people and uh, to forego building an organization that just automatically in perpetuity uh, enriches Alki Labs as a company. You have to build a protocol that enriches the protocol uh, and that's what decentralization really means. It's not just making sure that it's resilient and spread across thousands of computers across the world. It's not just that. It's also making sure that there's not one or just a handful of political or commercial actors that can control this thing. Um, and that's, a, that's been a radical shift in mindset for me as a founder um, and a continuing uh, challenge of course, to uh, try to design the post-mesh in a way that is a balance uh, between the immediate commercial needs that we have to be able to uh, compete with Apple 
because we need to make some money to be able to pay the staff that are building this. The post mesh is not so popular yet that we can just live off of open source contributions, but hopefully we'll get there one day. Um, so there's a, a lot of very interesting challenges with building this. And if anyone listening to this feels motivated by this mission, uh, I encourage you to get involved. Um, Tracy, for example, who's on this call, uh, who is now one of, of, of the key people on our team, uh, we, we found Tracy through this community. Um, she, she got involved because she, she cares, and we're, we're very happy that she's here. So if any of you listening feel like, yeah, I understand why the PostMesh is important. I believe that spatial computing is the future, and I want to find a way to, to help. Uh, please get in touch. And with great power comes great responsibility. How do you see the privacy concerns about what you're building? I know the last time we spoke, you um, have touched on the slashing mechanism which you have in your in your network for bad actors or for actors who might not be acting in the best interest of the network as a whole. Um, there are... There are moral challenges and technical challenges, like or behavioral challenges and technical challenges to building the post mesh. And some of the undesired behaviors cannot necessarily be rectified with technology, but some behaviors can, right? So uh, one of the things that we're doing with privacy is that we're changing the risk profile. We don't really remove the risk entirely because we don't believe that's possible, you know, in the current paradigm of how computers work, full stop. Like not even spatial computing, just how computers and the internet works. So one scary thing with centralized visual positioning um, is that that central database, that central service could become compromised and some government or some nefarious actor could end up looking through the eyes of the world, even if you trusted Google not to look through your AR glasses. If it is a centralized service that could be compromised, then who, who's to stop North Korea or whoever to actually look through the eyes of the glasses? Again, even if you, even if you trust Google, because technical systems can be compromised. So one of the... One of the... We, feel is a benefit with the post mesh is that you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. Instead of having the digital map of the world living in one centralized service, the, the map of the world is stored decentrally across this concept we call domains. A domain is a, a digital map, a digital representation of a part of the world. It could be a grocery store, it could be a mall, It could be an entire city, uh, but it's not the entire world. The, part, the, the task of a domain is to faithfully represent in a useful way a part of the world. And the domain is stored uh, with the domain owner uh, instead of with Alki Labs. So instead of worrying about what if Alki Labs gets compromised, it's more like, well, what if this individual domain owner gets compromised. Uh, if we were to imagine, Sean, for example, that you were visiting my home 
and we are connected to my domain that's hosted on my computer and our devices are communicated over communicating over my Hoggle node, which is a, a networking node in the PostMesh, um, then the concern would be that my node is compromised, uh, which is a different kind of risk profile. And that makes it the disastrous outcomes uh, we feel smaller. So there are more vectors of attack. There are more domains that could be compromised. But if any individual domain is compromised, the, uh, the outcome is not so bad. Thank you. Do you think that's also one of the main arguments in which you could convince a government, for example, if they have the choice between different variations of the post mesh of competitors, and then they have a decentralized solution, which more or less is infinitely more difficult to hack than any centralized option? I So different governments want different things. And Different governments have different amounts of power over the positioning service today. Uh, you know, let's remember that the GPS service, uh, the, the service literally called GPS, uh, is controlled by the U.S. government. There are other satellite services uh, like GLONASS that's controlled by the Russian government. China has its own. Uh, but these are not censorship resistant. Uh, it's in a conflict between China and the U.S., for example, it's the b both of these uh, governments are capable of interrupting the access to the positioning service that they have, um, and they can can jam access to these services. So, uh, in a century where there's a lot of worries about conflict, you know, we're seeing conflict in Europe now with the Ukraine and Russia, uh, some governments uh, are certainly looking at more censorship-resistant positioning services. Um, whereas, of course, if you are uh, more antagonistic in your stance, you may not be interested in that because you are motivated to be able to turn off the positioning of your uh, of your adversaries. Like, of course, it's great for government A to be able to deny positioning services for government B. And I, I think it's important for that reason to build something decentralized that is permissionless and censorship resistant so that when conflicts happen, positioning doesn't go down. Because quite likely, 10 years from now, so much of what we do will be reliant on spatial computing. And it should not be easy for a government to turn that off. So you're telling me that with the state which we have today, a government could shut down the positioning for most of its citizens in a heartbeat? Yes. Well, if you own the positioning service. Like, it's not easy for the government of Sweden to turn off the GPS, but there is a government that can turn off the GPS. Yeah, so it's quite concerning with everything that's going on in, in the world. Uh, I think even I awareness for how deep the surveillance actually goes. It's, um, 
it's difficult for us to think about, you know, because on the on the one hand, when you make more fine grained positioning, you're in you're inviting, in a sense, more fine grained surveillance. Um, and in one sense, there's no way around that. So part of it is creating layers of obfuscation and complication. And one of the reasons actually why we think it's great to not just break the world into one coordinate system, but to have each domain be its own unique coordinate system is that even if you managed to intercept my traffic and learn what my coordinate is in my coordinate system in that domain, if you don't have a translation key between the coordinate system that you're in and the coordinate system that, that I'm in, you still can't pinpoint me on a map. You would just know I'm in that domain. Uh, and that layer of obfuscation uh, we believe is going to be quite important, actually, in preventing people uh, from surveilling you. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult task for a nefarious actor uh, to have a database of all the different translation keys across all different, uh, all different domains in the world. Do you think that could also lead to governments not welcoming Orki? when they, for example, draw parallels to tornado cash, where things get obfuscated so much that they have concerns about the services potentially being used for illegitimate purposes? I hope not. I don't think so. I don't think that the government has as strong an interest in controlling the positioning service as it has in controlling the monetary system. Uh, without making a, a, a political statement here, I think it's fair to say that uh, governments feel that they need a certain amount of control over the monetary system to be able to uh, execute on their mandate as a government. But I don't know that any government in the world feels that way about positioning today, that, oh, we won't be able to function as a government if people are allowed to know where they are on a map. Um, so I... I Of course, I could imagine a world where a very nefarious government would do that, but I don't think any of the major political powers out there thinks that way about their own people and wants to control them uh, to that uh, to that level. Uh, of course, like I could be wrong, uh, but I, I don't think the motivation for a government to control positioning is as strong as the motivation to control the monetary system. And maybe this is naive, but uh, I, I actually feel that there might be an opportunity to get a global consortium of governments, actually, to make sure that the post-mesh uh, remains operational and as a public utility uh, for the world in the same way that the Internet is a public utility for the world, you know, with a notable exception that there are, there are countries that, that uh, put pressure on uh, ISPs to create things like the, the Great Firewall, where, where the internet is free with a couple of caveats. Uh, I hope that the, the post-mesh can always be free, if only with a couple of caveats. I believe you had some experiences now with trialing your own delivery company. Uh, remind me again, please, in which country that was. Uh, I'm sorry. So we, we have a, a company in Croatia uh, that's in the early stages of using 
the post mesh for what we call last meter delivery. Um, I, I don't know that that is fully live yet, but there's a company in Croatia called Gepek, which is also a, a crypto project. That's G-E-P-E-K. And Gepek were one of the very first people to look at our technology and see a big opportunity to disrupt an industry where what they wanted to disrupt was deliveries in particular. Uh, so that when you are, for example, at a, an office tower or a big co-working space and you order food or something on e-commerce, that that item can be delivered directly to your desk. What if addresses could be so granular that it's not just sent to the co-working space, it's not just sent to your office, it's literally sent to your, your desk or the delivery guy can find you out in the uh, staircase where you're having a cigarette. Um, and this is this space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. This concept is something we're starting to get uh, traction with here in Hong Kong uh, as well. There's a bit of a, a chicken and egg problem because first there has to be a domain before the application can deliver within the domain. So Gepek is very early on building applications that will make use of domains, uh, but Hong Kong is considerably earlier on. Uh, adopting domains as a as a standard. So here in Hong Kong, we've already established relationships with some of the largest uh, real estate companies here. And if if you if you know Hong Kong, you know that there's not that many. There's a a handful of companies that control most of the real estate in Hong Kong, and uh, we're getting uh, enormous amounts of of interest, uh, both from these real estate companies, but also actually from the the local government to make sure that buildings here are domains, that they are post-mesh enabled, so that you can have these kinds of future-proof use cases with last meter delivery or even uh, drone deliveries. Because, like, here's a fun thought. It, it, this only occurred to me quite recently, actually, but I live on the 28th floor of my building. Uh, at least that's the name of the floor that I'm on. But it's not actually the 28th floor. Because some floors are skipped for, you know, cultural reasons. Like many, many hotels in, in the West will skip the 13th floor. It's common here in Hong Kong and in greater China to skip the 4th floor and even the 14th floor and the 24th floor. And some floors are uh, bigger than others, etc. So it's only from inside my building that I can find what floor I'm on. If I was standing out on the street and I wanted to point to my balcony, that is unsolvable in principle from outside. You actually need to know how each individual building counts its floors to be able to know what balcony you're supposed to deliver to. Let that sink in, right? You actually need to know for each individual building how they count their floors to be able to know where the drone should deliver. And now maybe you're thinking like, oh, well, that sounds very niche. Maybe most of the buildings in the world are correctly counted like that. No, I, I, I would not make that assumption. Just for scale here, the city of New York, right? The, the biggest city in the Western world has 900 buildings taller than 100 meters, quite a lot. Uh, by comparison, uh, the little city of Hong Kong that I live in has over 4,000 uh, 
buildings over 100 meters. Uh, Tracy, I'm, I've moved my hand now. Is the sound quality better? I just got a message from Tracy that my sound is muffled. Does it sound better now? Yeah, no, it's good. Thank you. Uh, fantastic. Sorry, I was covering the microphone with my hand. So, yeah, I was just saying that uh, in these big Asian cities uh, where, again, if, you, if, you've never, if you've never done this, here's a fun thing you can do. If you go to a world map and you draw a circle that includes India and China. Make a circle big enough that it fits India and China. Uh, two cool things happen there. One is you've just circled more than half of the world's population are inside that circle, which is nuts. Uh, but also in, right in the middle of that circle, you will have Hong Kong. So hashtag Hong Kong, fantastic city. Um, these big Asian cities with populations of tens of million even arguably pushing hundreds of millions, depending on how you draw the, the boundaries of these cities. Um, these are the kinds of places where it makes sense to have drone deliveries, uh, where the economic impact of technologies like that would have the most effect. And it's unsolvable in principle, unless you have a database of how every individual building counts their, their balconies. And even if you knew how to count the floors, right, you don't want to be standing at the outside and literally counting balconies from the bottom up. If you've ever tried as a human, it's very, very difficult. Uh, my, my colleague, Johannes, who's also on this call, he's pointed that out before. That's like, it's almost like a psychopath test. You know, you, you, you can ask someone, can you count how many floors this building has? And a normal person just cannot do it. It's very, very hard to count the amount of floors that a skyscraper has. The, the, the mind just loses track. Uh, so building a, a, a mapping system, an address system that doesn't just say that I live uh, at this particular street address, but I have a three-dimensional address that a drone can find so that I can get my oat milk delivered straight to my balcony, I think that's something that's going to happen almost certainly uh, this decade uh, in Asia and maybe in two or three decades in the Western world. And our hope is, of course, that the post-mesh will be that standard. And we're already talking to uh, local governments uh, in the greater Asia region about how the post-mesh can help underpin those kinds of smart city developments. And in the Middle East, too, actually. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Because this sounds like a real-world problem, which most companies who are involved in drone deliveries probably haven't even seen yet. I, I think in the Western imagination, uh, drone delivery is very different from what it is in, in the Asian imagination, because the typical American city is so flat. You know, uh, if you calculated the average building height in all of California, I'm sure you'd get one point something floors. Um, whereas the average building height here in Hong Kong would be considerably, considerably higher. Again, in, uh, in Hong Kong, there are over 4,000 buildings taller than 100 meters. And of course, the drone delivery is more attractive in the most dense areas, much rather than where everything is flat. Uh, I certainly think so. Uh, I think at the, the pace that uh, Asia is adopting new technologies and the density that's here, uh, I, I would be just absolutely shocked if you don't see the most futuristic technolo technologies deployed here 
first. Uh, I live in Hong Kong because I'm very excited for this century and Asia's role in this century. And Hong Kong is right in the middle of what I think is perhaps the most interesting decades in human history coming up. I'm going to plug a question by one of our members, Blue Returns. He's asking, how has the business development gone recently? You have shared a variety of clips that have shown Orki in a few use cases. Which use case is Orki going to target the hardest at first? So Orki is providing two things. One, we have an SDK where people can build applications of their own. And some of those applications are getting close to ready. I can't spill the beans for what our partners are doing, but uh, I've been on the record before saying that people like Animoca are already building on our protocol, and that's still true. And you should be able to see some of these applications hitting the market soon. So that's the SDK. Uh, the SDK allows you to build things that talk over the Hogel network, that use domains, that connect to the PostMesh, essentially. But we also have uh, our own application efforts uh, with the, the Matterless team. Um, the Matterless team these days are, are doing business under the brand Aoki Labs as well. Uh, but we have our own app studio. Uh, and that app studio has been building AR pets and AR toys. And recently, uh, we have also been collaborating uh, uh, through different functions internally, but also with, with some strategics to develop um, this series of products we call Convergent for retail. Uh, and if you haven't seen these videos yet, I highly recommend you hop on over to aukilabs.com slash convergent and see what this does. It's a spatial computing platform for retail uh, where in the short term, we're very focused on uh, helping retail staff be more efficient. And I'll, I'll, I'll share some math uh, why uh, soon. Uh, but on the, the medium term, also really trying to revolutionize how people do their shopping in the physical world. Um, you, you really, really should go to aukilabs.com slash convergent and check out the videos we have there. So by some quick math to show like why, why, why are we doing something like this? Um, we, of course, believe that augmented reality has to uh, find some everyday utility and it needs to find a way to make money for businesses. We, we, we don't live in the post-scarcity utopia yet, and the best way to, for new technologies to be adopted is through capitalism, which means, of course, we need to find ways for our technology to help businesses make money. <clears throat> and, and what we realized was that, okay, there is uh, an industry very ripe for disruption, which is physical shopping. Uh, over the last two to three decades, e-commerce has been outgrowing physical shopping by 200, 300%. Um, and COVID was, of course, also a, a big hit for physical shopping. But fundamentally, not much has happened to how we shop physically uh, over the last few decades. There are a couple of things that have happened. You know, we, we started using credit cards. That was great. We started doing self-checkout in some countries. That's great. But physical shopping has been largely the same. And uh, if we start focusing on retail staff, uh, the retail industry has incredibly high staff turnover. 
uh, meaning there's a lot of temporary workers. People don't necessarily stay at the job for very long. If we take Walmart as an example, Walmart has a staff turnover of 44%, which sounds very high, but it's actually slightly lower than the American retail average. Um, as far as I know, the, the average annual turnover for retail staff in the U.S. is 60%. So Walmart is actually a little bit better there with only, quote unquote, 44% uh, retail staff turnover. And Walmart also has over 2 million employees. So we're looking at over 900,000 employee first days at Walmart. Every year, there are 900,000 employee first days at Walmart. And those employees have to be trained in where to find all the products, how to do their various tasks, and where to do their various tasks. So uh, once you've seen those demo videos, I, I can't show you here in a Twitter space, but once you see those demo videos, I'm sure you can see how we can knock off uh, conservatively hours of training for each employee. Uh, but in some retail environments, even days or potentially weeks of training, uh, and we think the PostMesh and the tools that we are building, the Convergence series, could help save Walmart somewhere, like realistically, really help them save somewhere between $40 million and $400 million a year just using this for, for retail stuff. Um, we are not piloting with Walmart at this moment, but we are piloting with other large international retailers um, that have a, a very large footprint. And our internal goal for the Convergence series is to get into 100,000 retail locations over the next three years. And with the current traction we have and the success of our current pilots, uh, I'm not embarrassed to say that on this Twitter space, that our goal is to get to 100,000 locations over the next two years. Thank you, Newt. And I'm gonna ask you guys one more time for retweets, if you haven't done so yet, and to leave a like, because now we're going to go into the audience's favorite topic, topic of course, which is going to be the Orki token, the plans around the TGE, your marketing efforts and strategy, and potentially the, the pivots which you maybe have made in your roadmap, and overall the timing which you have set out for everything surrounding the token. So... Uh... The best resource for people that want to learn more about the token right now is postmesh.org. Uh, if you want to read uh, on your own, you should definitely go to postmesh.org. Uh, that's the, the website of the Postmesh Foundation that will manage the decentralized economy and infrastructure of the Postmesh. Uh, in contrast to Alki Labs, uh, which is ultimately a for-profit company that is building the Postmesh for the PostMesh Foundation. Um, and what the Aoki token will do uh, when launched is to manage the rewards and reputations for the participants in the decentralized infrastructure. If you go to postmesh.org now, you will see that we have over 240, I think it will say 247, but I'm going to double check here. Um, Yes, 247 participating network servers right now. Uh, these are machines that help route traffic over the PostMesh to keep latency as low as possible. The PostMesh is always trying to, to route traffic over the most 
uh, local network possible. This protocol is already live, but it's not using the token yet. So the first thing that the token will do in phase one uh, when we launch it is to manage the reputations and rewards for these Hoggle nodes, the network layer of the PostMesh. And the way it works is that contributors like Hoggle nodes, but in the future also domain servers and domain mirroring servers, but in phase one, the Hoggle servers, uh, the contributors, they provide decentralized infrastructure to the pro PostMesh protocol so that the PostMesh protocol can provide service to the PostMesh consumers. And consumers here mean app developers and robot developers. It's not the end user. Uh, you know, it's not the end user that pays for the AWS bill either. Uh, we are a part of the stack of these things being built and uh, our customers ult ultimately the person building on the PostMesh. So when I say consumer in this context, I mean app developers, uh, including our own app studio, uh, Matterless, right? So the consumers, they need the token uh, to be able to get this service. And the way that that works is you take the token and you send that to a burn contract that gives you credits. Credits are offline, they're off chain. They're not offline, but they're off chain. And the credits allow us to keep real time track of how much of the service has been consumed. So again, the consumer burns tokens to get credits. They specifically, they burn a dollar denominated amount of tokens to get a dollar denominated amount of credits. This means that the consumer always knows how much it costs to use the service, even if the token ends up being 2000 times more expensive, the service doesn't end up being 2000 times more expensive. $1,000 worth of tokens will always give you $1,000 worth of credits. Then as these credits are consumed, the credits are passed on to a deflationary mint. So $1,000 uh, fed into the mint, uh, uh, $1,000 worth of credits fed into the mint will mint $1,000 minus the deflation rate worth of tokens. And those tokens get rewarded to the PostMesh contributors. Um, so uh, you can see a diagram of how this works. I, I imagine it's hard to just visualize this when I'm talking about it, but you can see this burn credit mint uh, system that we've uh, developed together with our token advisors. Shout out especially to faculty group that has been working on this design with us for a very long time. Um, this burn credit mint system is a modified version of the uh, the uh, I'm 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 blanking on the name mint burn equilibrium that projects like helium used. The big difference between the burn credit mint and the mint burn equilibrium is that our mint is informed specifically by how much is being consumed, like the amount of service, uh, whereas uh, one of the you know, arguably one of the flaws of Helium was that the mint was always linear. Uh, we only mint new tokens when the PostMesh is actually being used. So the more the PostMesh gets used, uh, the, the more deflation happens. Um, you should definitely check out that diagram. So again, phase one of the token will be for managing this Hoggle network, the networking substrate. So each contributor will stake uh, the Aoki token to signal to the PostMesh that they are trustworthy, put some skin in the game, uh, and have some 
uh, uptime guarantees uh, so that the post mesh can trust that these networking serv servers will actually provide the service in a reliable way. And if they fail to provide the service in a reliable way, then first they stop earning rewards. And if they continue to fail to reliably provide the service, then they get slashed. So each contributor uh, has to buy the token to stake into the network to be able to earn the rewards. And then they earn rewards for participating in the post mesh. And the uh, consumers, the applications, the, the robots, the devices, uh, they also need the tokens to make sure that they have credits so that they can use the post mesh. In phase one, uh, they don't have a staked reputation yet, but in a later phase, they will also uh, have a staked reputation. Phase one, uh, we will just require them to, to stake a certain amount to get access. But in phase one, there's no uh, slashing scenario for the consumer yet. Um, we will be publishing on postmesh.org a roadmap for the, uh, for the token uh, sometime in the next 100 days uh, before uh, the, the official launch. So we are targeting a launch uh, 99 days from now. Uh, that's not a hard promise, but that's our, that's our goal. We recently brought on a marketing firm, uh, Force Field Digital, that came highly recommended by our largest investor. Uh, and we have now embarked on this project together with Force Field Digital and a couple of, of new hires uh, to, to Alculab's marketing team to get uh, ourselves ready for a launch uh, 99 days from now, hopefully. Again, that's not a hard promise, but we're giving ourselves since yesterday 100 days to really uh, build up everything that we need to be ready to do this launch. We're building on the Avalanche uh, chain, and uh, we should be looking at a TGE in uh, early to mid-January. How important are the current market conditions for your plans of launching the token do you take them into account at all or do you plan the launch more around when the token is necessary for your network i don't look at the market at all other than praying that it will still be a bear market when we launch because i believe that a project as significant as ours uh, does not suffer in the the bear market we have not noticed a decreased interest in what we're doing. Uh, but during the bull market, you have to compete with monkey pictures and all kinds of things that distract people uh, from how cool this project is. Uh, so uh, we are not waiting for market conditions to change. If anything, we're hoping to be able to launch into poor market conditions where we can really dominate the news cycle. Um, the reason we didn't launch the token straight away, like we've been building for two years already, is we wanted to make sure that on day one of the token's existence, it already had a true purpose inside the, uh, the network. So the PostMesh is already live and has been live for a while. Some of the oldest servers here in the PostMesh have been with us for uh, just over a year. Uh, shout out to those OGs. Um, and now that the PostMesh is live, it's been battle tested, it's time to introduce the token. And this is part, part of our marketing, of course, that uh, we want to clearly establish ourselves as builders first and foremost. We're not, uh, we, we are not here to just create another shitcoin. We're trying to build a, a, a fundamental piece of the future of the internet. 
and uh, we prove our intent by building the protocol first and launching the token second. But also, it's an important part of being compliant with, with worldwide regulations. If we want the post-mesh uh, to be welcome all over the world, we certainly cannot be playing fast and loose with securities laws, etc. So we wanted to make sure that we build something that from day one is a utility token. Uh, so from day one, it needs to really have its true purpose uh, in the post-mesh, uh, or at least uh, some of its true pur uh, purpose in the post-mesh. Uh, there will be other phases for what, where the token will get even more utility. But that's what we've been waiting for. Uh, the earliest people that got involved uh, with our aspiration to build a token, they got involved more than two years ago. Um, just over two years ago, two years and a couple of days. And uh, we are now after two years of, of building with a, a truly world-class team, uh, we have something that is live, we have something that has traction. Uh, and it's, it's uh, this last stretch, this next three months is really uh, more, of a, more of a change in mind shift for us as a team to get a, a little bit out of our uh, of our builder hats and put on our community building hats and marketing hats and announcing to the world what we're building because we've we've been uh, not really in stealth but very focused on building let's say like marketing has not been our our, our strongest suit or priority but now uh, we're building an internal marketing team and we're working with this force field agency and we're taking the next three months uh, to give the post mesh the marketing love and attention that it deserves. Thank you. And if we can help you in any way with events or posts on Twitter, just let me know. And I'm Thank sure you. This is already very helpful. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm always very happy to do these uh, AMAs with the, the VVV uh, community. The questions are always very thoughtful and the turnout is always great. Uh, the, the VVV community, of course, knows that they're one of the very, very few places on Discord where I actually uh, go and check <laughs> things out. Uh, I appreciate this community very much. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Niels. Uh, do we have a few more minutes for two or three more questions? Absolutely. I, I am still on 90% battery on my phone. Let's do this. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. So we have uh, two questions by Matt. He's asking, what's your strategy regarding the onboarding and institute? incentivization of new people for nodes in private households besides having nodes on the major cloud providers for a more decentralized Hegel node? Okay, so a, a little bit of context for this uh, question. Um, we haven't really explained in this AMA yet, like, why are we decentralizing the networking service? What's, what's going on there? Uh, so Matt, if you allow me to uh, take the scenic route uh, to answer your question, uh, we decided to decentralize the network first because spatial computing, especially collaborative spatial computing, requires lower latency than basically any other mainstream internet application. Uh, you want to ideally have sub eight millisecond latency uh, reliably, which is very, very difficult to do uh, on the internet today, reliably. So uh, the reason it's difficult is that Devices don't really talk to each other peer-to-peer. -peer. They talk over the internet, and the internet has a lot of bounces through cell phone towers and satellites and 
cables under the water and, and God knows what. The, the, the distance between you and me, Sean, over the Internet is not, you know, measured in, in kilometers on a map, but over how many relays the signal has to, to bounce. So we wanted to shorten the distance over the Internet by making sure that there was always a server nearby nearby on the internet, which has some overlap with nearby in the world, but uh, not a perfect overlap with nearby in the world. For example, when I'm here in Hong Kong, I shouldn't have to connect to an AWS server in Singapore. So what we wanted to do is to decentralize across thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hyper-local servers. And we we had the realization that, well, we have, a, we have a foundational belief that the future of AR is not massively multiplayer. People are going to want to have uh, semi-private sessions with, you know, 10 people or less doing something. Most of the things that we're doing uh, with our AR glasses on a couple of years from now is not going to be in a massively multiplayer world where you need to be receiving signals from everyone at the same time. Uh, we don't believe that. And that means that if you're doing real-time networking, you know, for 10 players or less, that's something that computers have been able to do for a very long time, like since the 90s when I was a kid. So you could, in theory, build a networking server that is so lightweight that it could run on a, a computer with 90s strength. So that's what we did. We built Hogel, which is a very, very lightweight decentralized networking server that is so lightweight that it literally can run on IoT devices like routers. Uh, our CTO used to, I see on the PostMesh map here, that he's not running a, a production one at least, um, but maybe he's running one on dev, uh, on his router. Um, not on his computer, but on his router. Uh, so this is part of, of, of Matt's question, you know, like how are we gonna create incentives for people uh, to, to spin these up? Uh, so we'll get there. Uh, right now, we're in the face of uh, what we call cloud saturation. We're trying to reach cloud saturation. What that means is we want to make sure that there's a Hogel node on every availability zone of every major cloud provider. And very much uh, thanks to the participation of uh, not only the VVV community, but especially the VVV community, we have already achieved this with AWS. So the PostMesh has networking servers in every region of AWS today, which is fantastic. And we're now uh, trying to get all of the major cloud providers, uh, so Azure and Google Cloud. And the reason we're doing that is once we have cloud saturation, uh, we can basically see what is best of breed Web2 ping. If you were an excellent, excellent Web2 company and you had a server with every major cloud provider in every uh, major availability or in every availability region, what would the average ping be? So that's, that's what we're trying to figure out as a community now. What will the ping be when we're in every major cloud provider in every availability region? And that will then serve as a baseline to test the hypothesis of the Hogel network. Will ping times truly go down, as we're very convinced that it will, but we want to prove it, uh, when we start running this on ubiquitous computers, uh, when we start running this on smart TVs, when we start running this on routers, when we start running this on all the kinds of microcomputers 
that are on all the time connected to free internet. Because, for example, here in my home, I have ungated internet. I don't pay per megabyte. And a great deal of the world no longer pay per megabyte. And networking traffic does not use the GPU. It's not expensive like doing Bitcoin mining. Uh, being a networking server barely registers on your electricity bill. So that means we, we see a world where, uh, you know, a couple of years from now, uh, plugging in your smart TV to the post mesh uh, would be something that helps not only reduce your electricity bill, but actually might make you a couple of bucks. Now, of course, we have a significant treasury in the post mesh uh, that we will use to make it more attractive to be a Hoggle node early on. So you're not just earning a dollar here and there because uh, we're trying to prove at a civilization scale that the post mesh actually can solve this problem. So a, a big part of the post mesh foundation's treasury has been earmarked for rewards for people setting up early Hoggle nodes. So that's part of the answer for how do we create the incentives for people to set up these nodes in their home. One is that, well, the foundation will, uh, will subsidize this uh, for as long as the treasury can afford to. And ultimately, the goal is to have it very easy for Hoggle to just tick along in the, the background of things connected to unmetered internet. We've even, uh, without, uh, without mentioning names, we've even spoken to some of the uh, largest uh, telco uh, companies in the world about getting Hoggle pre-installed on routers in people's homes and installed on the edge in the 5G network, et cetera, so that we can uh, reach this uh, lower ping. Uh, on an application level, like what are we doing to create demand demand for Hoggle in the home? Uh, we are working uh, you know, with our own app studio to create consumer-facing products as well. So our, our AR pets, Companions, the Incos. Uh, we have our, our games, the first of which uh, is, is Floorcraft, um, and also uh, our, our roots in, in, in Rightful Ruler um, for, for Warhammer. We're, we're working on B2C applications as well that will hopefully create awareness and demand for having your own personal post-mesh hardware at home. But realistically, over the next few years, um, the the biggest reason for people to get involved with the Hoggle network is the uh, enormous subsidies that uh, they, the Postmesh Foundation uh, can put out to prove at civilization scale that latency can be brought down through decentralization. Uh, Matt, I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Niels. What would happen if, for example, Samsung comes to you and tells you, okay, we're going to run those nodes on all our smart devices? then they would be the ones generating revenue from that. And then probably it would also be more centralized, right? Um, so by smart device, you mean like phones? Oh, well, the smart TV, for example. Oh, so yeah, so on the smart TVs, yeah, I mean, Samsung would have to put up a lot of staking to do this, you know, because each, each Hoggle server has to stake its own reputation. But yes, if Samsung could afford... Uh, to buy up that much of the Aoki token that they could stake for millions and millions of TVs, uh, then it certainly would become a more centralized network in the sense that they would provide a lot of the Hoggle traffic. But that doesn't provide the same kind of consensus risk that a typical blockchain has. 
because Samsung really would just be acting as a networking server there. Like, we don't think it's a particular risk that so many of the servers are on AWS right now, other than if AWS decided to ban the PostMesh for whatever reason, um, that we would take a big hit. So uh, the PostMesh doesn't have the same kind of consensus risk that a blockchain has, and we don't have to be afraid of some big company deciding, hey, actually, we want to provide this this network. We think that we have hardware out in the world to do this. Like if the Helium Foundation, for example, decided that, you know what, we want to make sure that every Helium node gets a firmware update so that they are also a Hoggle node now. Uh, they could add hundreds of thousands of, of Hoggle nodes overnight. And from my point of view, everyone wins there if the Helium Foundation could afford to do something like that. Because again, each individual uh, server has to stake in uh, to be able to participate. Thank you. So we have a question from Victor. He's asking, do you have plans to integrate with headsets or glasses? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we, have, uh, we already have prototypes running on a couple of different headsets. Uh, the goal of the PostMesh is to be a universal spatial protocol. So it's not just for phones. It's not just for headsets. It's also for robots and IoT. So absolutely, uh, if you, I can't talk too much about what we're doing with the various headset manufacturers, but I can say that there's a bunch of headsets lying around our office. And uh, if you ever have your, if you ever uh, come by our demo space in, in Hong Kong, uh, we can show you some cool stuff running on headsets. We will be showing stuff running on headsets uh, before the TGE. So you'll be able to see it actually uh, running on a headset. But yeah, the goal of the PostMesh is to replace the GPS for all digital devices, not just for handhelds. Is there any way where the community could help you by potentially making introductions to big malls, uh, to big retail uh, franchises? Do you have any Absolutely. documentation? Do you have any documentation which they could use, like a you know, like a short summary of the benefits for a retail brand? Absolutely. You can just send them alkylabs.com slash convergent. We find that that website uh, helps convince retailers very quick of what the benefit of what we're doing is. Uh, so if you know someone that's working in, in retail, whether it's uh, grocery or, or malls or fashion, whatever, you can definitely send them to alkylabs.com slash convergent. And if you want to get involved and give us some referrals, you can reach out to us on Discord. We are open to negotiating referral fees and, and, and things like this for qualified, uh, for qualified introductions. So you can, you can definitely get involved. Because one thing which comes to mind is obviously Dubai, which calls itself the city of the future. So mm -hmm. this would be definitely the right fit. And then you have the line, which they build in Saudi Arabia, which by definition, it's going to be dense and you're going to have to figure out at which level you are located, which are going to receive deliveries, or which are looking for certain parts of, uh, of the building. Um, without breaking any NDAs, I can say that we recently had the, uh, the pleasure of flying down to the Middle East region uh, to talk to... Uh, some some very large players about some of the big infrastructure projects that that happening that's happening down there. So we're 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 excited about what's what's happening in that region of the world as well. <laughs> it's just getting everyone excited, Niels. 
Uh, I didn't have the uh, I didn't have the pleasure of, of flying out myself, but my uh, colleague Patrick, who I don't think is on this call, is taking a uh, a, a well-deserved vacation after having done a, a conference just now. Uh, Patrick was recently in the the Middle East, um, and we had we had a, a very fruitful visit down there. That's that's great to hear. Thank you, Nils. And I want to also it's a little bit uh, late, but uh, congrats congratulate you for becoming a father we had some thank you very background, much. background noise very 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 on very low volume uh, but obviously we can hear uh, you're you're happy dad yeah th thank you very much yes uh, my my, uh, my son is four and a half months now and um, I have the the great fortune of being able to uh, bring him into the office very often uh, which makes it a lot easier to be a startup founder and a dad at the same time I'm, I'm very lucky um, to uh, to be an entrepreneur so that I can I, I can bring my kid to work without anyone telling me not to. <laughs> my apologies to my colleagues that have to deal with my crying son. <laughs> uh, thank you once again for your time, Niels. It was amazing to talk to you today. It was super good to get insights into what you have been building and your plans for the next 99 days. And of course, for everything beyond that. And I'm extremely happy that we can be a part of your journey and a part of Orki's success. And Thank you for believing in us. It's been a, a fantastic journey with you guys. I'm so happy to see so many of the VVV community uh, active, not just on our discord.gg slash Aukiverse, but also actually participating in the Postmesh. Uh, a very big percentage of the uh, Postmesh infrastructure right now uh, is either hosted by VVV or through friends of VVV. Uh, so we're very, very thankful for you uh, helping us kickstart uh, this, this protocol. Uh, hopefully we're building something really historic together. So, uh, you know, tip of the hat to all of you. Thank you for helping make this protocol come true. Thank you, Nils. Thank you for having a big vision about which we all can get passionate about. And you, you know, you've have, you have inspired me on the very first call which we had. And that never changed. You always gave us confidence to stay by your side and to um, to witness what you're building. And I, I'm very grateful that we can be a part of this. And I'm very much looking forward to everything you will achieve in the future. Thank you very much. See you all on, on Discord and, and, and Twitter. Again, we're on discord.gg slash Aukiverse if you want to come chat with us in real time. Uh, but you can also follow us at Labs and also at Postmesh. Uh, if you're interested in the tokenomics, etc., you should definitely follow at Postmesh. That's a new uh, Twitter handle that we put out just two days ago uh, to be able to have a more clear communication channel about the decentralized infrastructure and the token uh, so that Aoki Labs can be more focused in its communications on app development. Uh, so that the, the at Postmesh account, if you're not following that on Twitter already, I highly recommend you do because that will be the main place on Twitter where we share news about the decentralized protocol and its token. All right. I'm going to make sure to drop all the links and handles below in the comments. And with that, I want to thank you again, Niels. And I hope to talk to you soon. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. This recording has been prepared and made available by VVV. It is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a solicitation to sell, 
buy or subscribe to any financial instruments or products. VVV does not express any opinion as to the present or future price of any instrument mentioned in this recording. The information provided in this recording is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published, but VVV, along with its directors, officers and employees, does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of this information as it may change in the future without notice. Any decision made by a party after listening to this recording shall be on the basis of its own research and not based on the information and opinions provided by VVV.